1: Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. We're back for part two of our discussion with the defense with Jonas Schaefer. Jonas, how you doing?
2: Good, Ken. How you doing?
1: I'm, I'm doing well. I have to ask again. It's it's part of the rules of being a. You know, <laughs> sorry, we just you know, it's just been a minute or so since we stopped stopped talking for this first episode. But I, I do want you to go back and and download that first one. Jonas, uh, exceptionally cerebral guest, has a lot of interesting things to say about the Ravens' defense as it's constituted. Uh, studies a lot of different. Uh, defensive packaging and scheme elements and and has brought a lot to that to the table in the first uh, episode so a lot of fun always to talk defense with him you always want to uh, have someone on who uh, who really wants to kind of mix it up and 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 talk about things that he had a lot of interesting things to say about uh, about the pass rush in particular and uh, some ruminations about that uh, miami game from uh, 2021 and how awful that was uh, that uh, kind of hopefully what the Ravens are making. Making uh, uh, facing their pass rush and their secondary look like these days in a completely different way, of course. But we yeah. we always do individual player discussion in the second half. Start with that, Jonas. You're up first.
2: Uh, I guess let's let's talk about Arthur Mallett, uh just because I think he had a a pretty good game, uh, an exceptional first half. In general, uh, that's probably the the most noted person. That I have here, um, just a, a good job, despite the rather uh, formidable task that he was up to. With seeing a lot of Amon, of Amon or St. Brown, and then just the, the general challenge of going against these Detroit schemes. Um, let's just kind of so some of the plays that I have. The third drive, you have the the sack. Uh, I know we talked about in in the first episode. Um, It is interesting to see the shoe on the the other foot in in, in a lot of ways because I know the the frustration with the Greg Roman offense was how not only do you have the clock issues, but just the condensed looks made some of those exotic blitz packages easier to get home. And that's been less of a problem this year because the Ravens are getting to the line of scrimmage quicker and they're spreading things out more. So. The, the blitz packages that Lamar has seen have been more conventional and I think easier to, to handle for this offensive line, but because of how Detroit likes to org- organize itself offensively, you know, great job by Mike McDonald. I don't know if it was a a blitz that they kind of checked into because it was a condensed, a condensed look, but um, you know, all Arthur Mollett had to do was just come in off the side, completely unblitzed, because Travis Jones and Broderick Washington, like we talked about in that first episode, did what they had to. They engaged the middle of that offensive line, uh, kept it occupied for as long as they had to before they dropped into coverage. All 300 plus pounds of them, and you know Arthur Mollett does what he does, what he does, and takes advantage of a, a relatively uh, weak prey because Jared Goff. Is not C.J. Stroud. He's not Joe Burrow. He's not even Gardner Minshew. He is a, a very immobile quarterback, and um, that the Ravens, you know, as as Mallette showed, I, I think did did a good job of actually finishing some of those sacks, and it was just a great job by him to finish to finish, uh, to finish the, the the sack on that next drive. What do you have? Um, it finish is the drive with a play. Yeah, yeah. Well, and not only that, I think I, on the second and twelve, I believe two plays earlier, uh, he he basically forces a away from from Goff because it is a a second and twelve throw. It's an in breaker. Um, you know, Amon Ross St. Brown is matched up on the left side mm-hmm. with, with Brandon Stevens. Stevens is his primary cover guy. The Ravens drop into I think some you know too high look, and uh, Mullet just jumps the route so quickly and so. Uh, smartly um, that it was frankly a little bit surprising that that cough threw his way uh, or looked his way and wound up because by the time that cough you know had the ball reared back mallet was basically in that throwing window and all golf could do his own his lone recourse was to just throw that ball like three yards to the left of mm-hmm. amandara st brown and brand stevens or else that would have been probably a pick six um, and then as, as you said ken i think two plays later it, it, was, it was kind of funny to uh, on that fourth and eight incompletion. Um, it, it was kind of weird to to look back at that play because it's, om- I don't know if Mollet is playing trail technique or, or, or what, but it, 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 you know, at the break in that route, Mollet almost kind of comes to a stop as Amon Ra St. Brown starts to head to the sideline. I, I don't know if Amon Ra St. Brown was almost playing like a game of chicken with him where he, like he wanted to, Mollettto to make him think that he was breaking left over the more open middle part of the field mm-hmm. um when actually he was going to head to the corner but uh you know Mollett basically just runs that route for him uh, i don't know if you call it like a sell route i don't know if you call it a corner route but he was basically in you know Hamadara St. Brown's shorts uh, for for every step of that route and there was really no place that Jared Goff could put it so great job by him uh yeah, I, th- I think he was one of the stars of that first half i didn't um don't have a whole lot of notes on him for the second half uh obviously he was targeted throughout because of just how often uh, Aminar St Brown was targeted but I think he did a, a really good job at doing what he had to 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 give the ravens the the advantage that they needed in that first half
1: yeah late in the ball game q four five thirteen I have it. it might be yeah he he was uh had ideal underneath coverage again. Um, uh, It was actually, I think, with 459 on fourth down and and 10, he had a deal underneath coverage again and and forced an underthrow. One thing we saw from Jared Goff a lot, Jared Goff is not shy about playing this game as if it's the Pro Bowl. Um, he he grounds the ball as if there's no intentional grounding rule. He'll <laughs> throw the ball away at the feet of receivers, you know, at at will. And and frankly, I think that's exactly what they want to see from him. He's not a guy who who is going to be particularly good about avoiding the sack. The one time he tried to avoid the sack in this game, he got pushed out of bounds for a two yard loss and would have been better off throwing the ball away. Right. Obviously, from, from from Van Noy. Uh, so he's not a guy you want on the run. He's he's a guy you want to um, protect as well as you can. They are certainly built to do that. And they have to use deception to get him time and space occasionally. Otherwise, the one thing I'm always kind of jealous about that, that Goff can do and Lamar can't, um, and, and Lamar can do it occasionally, but it, it, it rarely works is that the edge defender almost never buys the zone blocking aspect of a, uh, zone block left naked boot, right play. And so they're, they're, the edge defender on the on the on the what would be Lamar's right side is almost always keyed in on Lamar in a way they never let him get away. And with Goff, they're they're right. they're, they're buying the run the whole way, um, and so he, uh, he he can roll out like Flacco did for many years, and and have a good chance to get an ample time and space opportunity, which means he can test the deeper routes that are open to him uh, on that boot. And uh, that that's something that uh, uh, Goff was able to do one time anyway in this game. But I thought they did a pretty good job of containing that in general. And the Lions actually, I thought they did less in this game of, or sorry, did more of chasing the ball to the wrong, chasing the wrong, the non-carrier of the ball after the mesh point in particular.
2: Yeah, the, it, it was, that they did a, they did a great job in general. Sorry, I was just looking at something else, but um,
0: it,
2: I, I, th- I think one thing that, we should talk about if and when we talk uh, about Kyle Hamilton is some of the like the, some of the few concerns that I have just with with this Ravens defense when it comes to some of like the play action and, and motion stuff that that can get this defense a little bit over aggressive and over overt skis and and lead to some of the, the few big plays that I think we've seen against this this Ravens defense.
1: Uh, well, maybe maybe we jump into that right now. I'll go ahead and and uh, and talk a little bit about Hamilton in this game, who's a little bit of a hidden player. Uh, you know, he's when he's on the back end and he's part of the uh the, the 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 cover two shell that is gonna deny a lot of deep passing opportunities. I mean, it's it's not exactly like Goff is wearing a wristband that says find 20 on every play, you know, because that's really a lot of respect given to a single high safety. It was really it's really more a case of you know the Ravens are gonna are, are gonna have a good chance to be playing a deep zone look, where not only do they have two guys back, but they're also gonna be looking at you. So they're 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 gonna have good clues as to where the football is going. So if you throw it deep, you better have some way of scheming that guy open or working off a uh, a concept that allows you to detect what the safety is doing or or trying to get him to commit to an underneath route. And and I just most quarterbacks now have I think come to the correct conclusion that they're not going to be able to do that very often, and that's 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 at the heart of why the Ravens are allowing so few deep shots and so few success on deep shots this year. But I I think Hamilton is kind of uh, kind of wasted in that deep role um, when when he's back there just. Preventing the long pass because I think other it's been proven that other players can do it well. Williams with one arm could do it kind of well. Uh, Worley did it exceptionally well in the game he was back there, right. and it was you know game and a quarter or whatever it was. And and uh, you know I think they've got another guy. They've got another free safety, Adams, who they signed to the practice squad, who I thought would be the call up this week. Um, maybe hasn't completely figured out the defense yet, or hasn't completely adapted to it. But you know he's an older safety, but a free safety um i, I just right. i th- i think that the opportunity is right to move hamilton back to back to slot corner and i think also molet is is good but he's limited in some ways that hamilton is not and so i think he 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 probably gives you more in general i think hamilton molette has much more trouble
2: with trail technique against any pretty good receiver yeah i mean i i think the i don't know if if there is a slot defender in the league who I would trust more against a screen heavy team than Kyle Hamilton. Mm-hmm. He is just he can bench press any blocker he's up against. He he just flies around with like with, with reckless abandon. I mean like the I think the Ravens I, just, I remember like looking at this this stuff on Sports Info Solutions. I think they were just god awful over the first like six or seven weeks of the last season, basically before they finally settled on on Hamilton as that primary slot guy at stopping uh, screen passes, mm-hmm. they they were just, you know, I think that that Buffalo game, the Bills got him a couple times. I just want
1: to say that's also exactly the point at which they got Roquan Smith and they got Tyus Bowser back, yes. which is is also right. fantastic <laughs> tonic for that that exact uh, problem.
2: Right. I think the the Bengals got them, even though the Ravens won that primetime game in Baltimore, I think the Bengals got them a couple times with with some uh, screen passes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Hamilton comes in and because he's always going to play to the passing strength of the field. Like, why would you even bother throwing a screen his way? Because mm-hmm. either he's the guy whose man is getting that pass, or he's the guy who's taking a block from another receiver and just completely destroying their leverage. Mm hmm.
1: He is a he is certainly a very special player in that regard and and you, you take some of the limitations
2: and deal with him yeah and but to, to your point though about just kind of finding ways about to, to move him around even though he is typically lined up in that in that too high structure i, I thought it was interesting you know he's not involved in the, in the play but this is the first drive and i thought it was interesting just to to look back um there's the the incompletion to jameson williams uh was covered by Brandon Stevens I think it's like a cover 3 and mm-hmm. you know it's it's a, it's a tough row cuz Brandon Stevens is outside leverage it's a, it's an outbreaker yada yada but it was just like Mike McDonald is a is a madman type of uh reaction when you see Kyle Hampton lining up as the you know one of the two high deep safeties and then just screaming downhill into the flat to basically Take care of the the running back or the tight end who, who's leaking out, and you have the the cornerback on on that side of the field being the one who's dropping into that that deep third. So, um, they are not necessarily being passive with how they use him in that deep safety spot. Uh, they are, you know, having ways that they're trying to find ways for him to be more dynamic, more you know, closer to the action. And, and I thought that was an interesting way, even though he obviously had no impact on on that play. Mm-hmm. he's He's got the characteristics you
1: want to be a vacuum cleaner for the football in a lot of different ways. Obviously, the ball gets tipped in the middle of the field. It's usually good news for the defense. But the Ravens have a particularly bad record this year of converting their passes defense to interceptions. They're near the top of the league in passes mm-hmm. defense. I think they might be fourth, but they're – in a like six way tie for eight with five or six interceptions, and the only guy who's really had any success is Geno Stone, who's four for four in terms of his PDs. Yeah. Everybody else on the team is is two for thirty seven or something uh, in terms of their uh, con- converting their their PDs. So they've they've had a lot of problems with that. They should be getting more. You get some passes defense to the line of scrimmage. You expect to get some. You get some passes defected by the by the inside linebackers. You expect to convert some of those, particularly if you're in cover two. Um, so anyway, I, I, I wish Hamilton could get more involved. And I think the closer to the line of scrimmage you get him, the better for those purposes. I also think there's other players who play a great center field that the Ravens have had on the team this year and, and Williams and Worley have, have both been terrific. So anyway, I've kind of, I've kind of been around in terms of where Hamilton can help the Ravens most, but I'm back to it being at nickel and, uh, and I, I, I really want to see him there if they can arrange for it to happen the rest of the year.
2: Yeah, and the, uh, the the to kind of bring it full circle to the the one shortcoming that I think he's had this year is like when he is asked to be that last line of defense or like the co-last line of defense mm-hmm. when he messes up and it gets over aggressive, I think it they they've really been hurt a couple of times. It hasn't been very often, but um, this is like it was like a minor example, but I thought it was just indicative of the my broader point which is there's like the on the fourth drive for the lions it, it's only a 14 yard completion to st brown but it's a play action bootleg um hamilton gets a little bit over aggressive on following the the run flow of that and he misses he misses Amon ross st brown coming back on the crosser and you know he tries to play that i guess the you know the think college coaches call it kind of robot tech robot technique where you just are, are following the you're, you're not really you don't really have eyes on the quarterback you just are trying to put yourself perpendicular or parallel to the to the the receiver who's coming over the middle of the field and he couldn't do that and it it reminded me of him being out of position on the um on the uh derrick henry run you know against the titans he he followed that run uh incorrectly Uh, i think he was probably one of a couple guys who didn't do their job and uh it was either him or it was another Safety who were out of position on the couple nice Zach Moss runs by the Colts in that in that loss uh, in a couple of weeks back. So he is a fantastic player, but his rare moments of indecision or over aggressiveness I think have been notable this year, partly because he's been playing at, at a more at a deeper spot in that defense. Okay, so so I think you've answered
1: the question, but you think he would be. Well, the the defense would be would have lower severity errors if he was up front,
2: occasionally being over aggressive than if he's on the back end. I don't know. I think I think it's just like we we are focusing on the the um on the what was what am looking for? Like you know the, the 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 poor brushstrokes on the Mona Lisa. You know, like yes. the, we're, we're fixating on Fair uh, on those things because they are. <laughs> I, I, I just think that, you know, when, when he messes up, it's notable because, you know, it's just like the the, the, the you know, it's like an offensive lineman where you really are only focusing on them when they screw up because the Ravens are so rarely tested downfield. Kyle Hampton is so rarely tested. I mean, we should we should not acknowledge that he had terrific coverage on that, that uh, earlier pass to, to Sam Laporta on that third down, and he just... Again, like kind of ran the route for him, was playing like twelve yards off coverage, but still was able to basically know the exact step at which Sam Laporta would would break out to the sideline and and you know was there to to be really in contested catch territory. So, um, I think Camel Hamilton is a genius level football player, and I'm sure he'll get smarter, and and these errors that we're talking about will become fewer and fewer and further and you know fewer and further between. But I, I do think it is interesting that the The underlying cause for some of those rare missteps have been like pre-stamp motion or players being, you know, not where you typically expect them to be. All right. Well, let's move on to another player. Who you
1: got? Do you want me to go? I kind of went with Hamilton. It's it's up to you, I think.
2: Yeah. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll go with uh, with Marlon Humphrey. Um, he according to next gen stats was targeted just four times uh, allowed two completions for five yards uh, he obviously had the uh pass interference or the you know defensive holding penalty or whatever it was which to to me during the game and again looking at now seemed pretty soft um i think it's been a very after you know a, a rough <laughs> reintroduction to the NFL with that with that Pittsburgh game has been uh, pretty dang good. Um th- th- these past two weeks uh, he, he w- didn't allow a single completion in that Titans game and for him to go from no completions allowed to two completions allowed for 5 yards um was uh, I th- think it's a step in the right direction. Uh you know you, you worry about the, you know these guys coming back from foot injuries um how they're going to respond. Uh, Devin Duvernay for one, I think we can point to as like a guy who Hasn't gotten back that burst that that he had before that that foot injury last year. Um, I think the Ravens did the right thing ultimately by you know being patient with Marlon and making sure that he was totally comfortable and getting up to full speed. I don't know if he's there completely yet, but he, he looks pretty good. Um, it was interesting to to go back and, and watch the All Twenty Two and see him show that physicality. I mean, they're they're the uh, the the Marvin Jones replacement <laughs> that the Lions uh, threw out there. Uh, what was his name? I think. He, Antoine Green yeah he was end, just yep. he he so is he a, is he a tight end because I think uh, he's
1: listed as a tight end on the Detroit roster I believe so I uh okay. we looked at, no no I'm wrong he's a he's a wide receiver 6'2", 199. Okay, yeah all
2: right he he was just like a, a baby deer out there he was at the slightest bit of contact whether it was from Marlon jamming him or Brandon Stevens jamming him just could not absorb the slightest bit of contact. And um, the Ravens obviously like to play that, that, that press coverage. they like to get up in your face and, and make you earn those, those, those smooth releases. But um, if they are bullying a guy like that, I think it's a good sign for the, for the rest of the year when they, they when they face some of these, these real th- thoroughbreds who are on this, on this, on this, uh, on this Raven schedule. I think there's a lot to pull from Marlon's performance that has really,
1: really positive portent for the future here. I think that the, the portent for the future, that's, that's redundant, right? Anyway, positive portent is, is, I don't think you do a positive portent for the past. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, That'd be good. Um, so you have, uh, I, th- I loved his physicality versus the run. And I think that's been good since he's returned. I think that's, he's been a good downhill player. Always, always done that very well. Uh, always been a guy who could play off his receiver to another receiver, which we haven't really seen yet. Um, we saw him blitz the quarterback twice, get pressure on both occasions as I scored it. Um, uh, the first time he actually just got golf sleeve, but that was enough to get golf turned around and wait, you know, wondering what happened to him, which was, you know, that's distracting is, is exactly what you want. Um, and then the, uh, uh, you know, in, in coverage, he obviously had his best game by far since he returned. And and I, the, the last thing I'll say here is that it's a really good sign and kind of an embarrassment of riches for the Ravens now that they don't have a place for rock Yassin or, Darby, and I'm not even sure which one is the third yeah. cornerback at this point. And Stevens is taking every snap, and and uh, um, Humphrey's taking every snap before the retirement, of course, when they got all their number twos onto the field, including J.A.D. and and uh, Yassine and, and Darby. But, you know, Yassine and Darby were – Extremely serviceable in these first few weeks of the season and got the Ravens through. Stevens has been an Iron Man who's probably played more snaps than any other Ravens player on defense right now. It's very close. He had played all of the snaps before this game, and he missed some snaps, but Queen and, and Roquan missed some snaps also. So I think it, it,
2: it, it kind of evened out. He's still got the he lead. He is, according to Pro Football Reference, at 478, which is seven more than number two, Patrick Queen. There you go. All right. Uh, so anyway, they, they've they've um, uh, they certainly uh, uh,
1: I think seen the progression out of Humphrey that I think will take him to the right place. Uh, at least I hope so before it's over.
2: Do you think we will see Ken? Um, I, I guess just kind of if you were to look into your your crystal ball, do you think we'll see at cert, at a certain point in the maybe relatively near future um, the Ravens go. With, I don't want to say experiment because that, that makes it sound like it's not serious, but do, do you think they will at some point transition to Stevens at one outside cornerback position, Yassine slash Darby at another, and then Marlin back on the slide? Um, I think they've got better options now. You know if I'm if I'm looking at
1: at the general elements of physicality, size, you mentioned the ability to bench press an opponent, you know, I'd go Hamilton there first. And one thing, here's here's the wild card in here. And I've thrown this out there. I don't know if this is a realistic possibility or not, but I think he'd be great at it. What if you put Marlon on the back end? The guys he I, we we haven't really seen what Marlon can do looking at the quarterback, but I think he'd be great at it. He'd certainly be physical enough to play safety. That wouldn't be a problem like it is for many cornerbacks who try and transition. Like the whole notion that that um, uh, Marcus Peters was going to transition to safety is kind of like not realistic based on his build and physicality. Honestly, he's a dog. He really tries to tackle. He's just he's just not built to take a lot of punishment as a safety. Humphrey, I think, is. Not only that, he'd be a great ball puncher. And I think if you get him looking at the quarterback, not only do I think that he'd be good at that, but I think if you wanted to put him back at corner, you could. And there might even be portable skills he'd take with him back to that
2: position that he'd learn at safety at a higher level. Yeah, I I think a prerequisite for being a safety is a willingness to tackle people and uh, Marcus Peters, God bless him. Uh, I don't think it was was all that interested in doing that. You, if you just remember that that god awful uh, near end of game play against the Saints, where he just decided a you know a, a half-hearted shove on. I forget was was that a, a was that a catch and run or was that a trying try to remember the play here in the 2022
1: yeah. game? It would have been.
2: Yes, it was just very. I mean, like it didn't matter because the Ravens. The, were running away with the game at that point but it was just like mm-hmm. what are you doing Marcus i mean <laughs> you are such a talented ball hawk but at that at that point in his career and maybe it's still still now just a very very uh, low level of interest in tackling you know contrasted nicely of course with marlin i mean I, it's funny you mentioned that kind of because i was just thinking like what if mark What if marlin you know has lost a step or did lose a step and i, I think you're right that they could very easily in the future, you know, move him to, to safety if, if that's what they saw as best for the team. And that was something that he agreed with with for for whatever reason. Um, I mean, like the, the goal under Wink Martindale, I don't think it's been restated in as uh, pop culture uh, infused terms um, or even like just kind of you know, uh, universal terms as for, for Mike McDonald was like to, to build a basketball team where you could just kind of have those interg- interchangeable positions and, and you could have, you know, one guy line up at spot A and be able to play spot D. And that was, I think, like the platonic ideal for Wink Martindale and Mike McDonald, obviously studied under Wink. Uh, I, I think there's probably similar DNA there. And we've seen based on how he's, you know, asked linebackers to run with guys in coverage based on how we, we've seen him you know, have these 330 pound defensive tackles drop into these middle hooks. I don't think it's out of the question that, you know, at, at some point he could ask Marlon to, to take on a new role and, and possibly, you know, be a guy who lines up in a, in a deep half at a certain point, if that's what it means to make that quarterback hold on to the ball for a split second longer. Yeah. No,
1: I, I, I mean, you know, right now, The Ravens are only one player away, one injury away from being really shorthanded at free safety because Williams is not he's not ready to play again. And I don't know how long it's going to be, but it it looks to me like it's going to be a while. Uh, Stone is obviously in some ways the most important player on the defense because of his center field skills on the back end. Um, and, and I, Hamilton, we haven't seen him bring that to the game. We've seen him, you know, the, the threat of him probably be useful to the team in, in split safety role on the back end. But I, I just, I think Marlon would bring a different dimension to that. And, you know, you've, you've got, you've got not only the chance for him to be a center fielder and do those things, but Marlon could also bring you a lot of the punch out skills
2: that you'd really love to have your safety have. Yeah. I mean, just, that'd be exciting. It, it was interesting. I forget exactly. This was just like, it was one play. So you don't want to draw too much of a conclusion, but there was a play in the first half. I remember watching before I hopped on with you again, where I think it was like a run down. Um, and it, it was not Kyle Hamilton in the box, but it was Gino stone um, who, who was lining up closer to the last scrimmage. Which I thought, which I thought was interesting. Maybe that was just, you know, how, how the, the play, that Mike McDonald had called played out, but it was interesting that it, for at least that one play, they didn't change things around drastically enough. Um, that it was Kyle Hamilton, who obviously a more natural run defender than Geno Stone, being the guy uh, close to the line of scrimmage as opposed to to Geno. But um, yeah, I mean, obviously they, they they trust Kyle Hamilton enough to to be able to to line up in a spot like that. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, outstanding. I think it's my turn. Uh, I'll I'll jump ahead. I want to talk about Travis Jones because I, I I was really high on him during the preseason. I thought he was just playing at a, at a at a very high level. Obviously, against some second tier competition, but also some t- when the top offensive linemen were out there, he was generally on the field as well. He was he was playing the first half of most games. Um, but this game, he really had. I think his probably his best game so far. Um, four pressures, as I scored it, and they weren't cheapies because he got them against Frank Ragnow. Basically, he was the guy he, he used as a sock puppet, pretty much in this game. Um, yeah. But I bowled Frank Ragnow uh, across the cone for a pressure, swam past Frank Ragnow to tackle the running back Reynolds for RM zero. So that was a really nice. That was a really nice play on third and one that brought up fourth and one, which became the interception. Uh, and then on third and three, he bowled Ragnow into Goff for a quarterback hit. I never actually verified the quarterback hit from the All-22, um, but, but it, that's the way it's scored in the game book. And he, he, he bowled Ragnow again for a fast pressure uh, into the pocket as, uh, as Goff threw a, a five-yard pass. He had another bowl of Glasgow, the left guard. Um, those are not lightweights in this league. Those are those are pretty decent offensive linemen. And to get four pressures in a game, plus another really nice play against the run uh, is good. He had two of his three tackles were defensive wins. Always like to have that happen. Played 34 snaps. It was a nice game of balanced defensive line play in this game. Some of it because there was some garbage time at the end um, that they really wanted, they, they could afford to play people less. But Justin Matabike in particular, he's got to play less to be very effective, in my opinion, as a pass rusher, he's he's best when rush when when rested. Fifty nine percent of the snaps last year. I think he'd be much better off playing maybe forty seven to fifty percent of the snaps and maintaining some of his freshness. Which means the Ravens need to go to more one three with Pearson Jones on early downs, or you know having Jones in there more on the early downs with other heavies.
2: Yeah, I mean. The thing that I was most excited about was to see with Travis Jones and his development, And the thing that was kind of curious about, about how Connecticut was using him or perhaps overusing him was like he was playing just an absurd amount of snaps yep. in college, just like 50 to 60 per game, which is an extremely high volume for a college 300 plus pounder. So I, I was uh, pretty gung ho on the fact that like, oh, less will be more with him. And you know, obviously he had his his rookie year ups and downs. I, I think uh it was interesting to hear, I believe, Michael Pierce on the Lounge podcast with, with Ryan Mink and, and Garrett Downing say that like that preseason knee injury that that Travis had really kind of threw a wrench into his development that, that first year. Uh, because do, do you remember was it was it the game against Arizona where he just had that drive where he was basically unblockable? <laughs> like he, he was just he had a, a takeover series and um I think that might have also been the game where he got hurt, unfortunately, and you know he needed a couple of weeks to, to get back from it. And um, he was obviously a serviceable uh, rookie year defensive lineman, which is no small feat in the NFL, uh, especially when you look at just how long it takes for some of these blue chip high pedigree you know, f- former first round pick defensive lineman to, to blossom. I mean, like Jonathan Allen needed until year four, until he was, you know, yep. a really, really good player. Justin Matabike obviously had a, uh, was a ter- ter- terrific sack guy at AM, but he's only really now kind of fulfilling that promise as a, as a pass rusher. So for him to be where he was last year was, I think promising. And he came into camp in good shape and uh, just to, to kind of restate what you said. I mean, if you, if you can get your hands on the the all twenty two and you want to look at the quarter four, eight forty three snap, it's a it's a completion from Golf to Laporta for five yards. They they move the chains, but what he does, what he does to 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 Rag now is exceptional. I mean, he, he's lining up as like the a one sec. He kind of hits him with a bit of a a stutter, you know the to kind of throw off his bounce a little bit and then he just turns him into a blocking shed. I mean, if it's almost like a you, you tip your cap to Rag now that he's actually able to kind of sort of maintain his balance because the power that he's hit with is so forceful to knock him back like four or five yards. Um really incredible. Uh and you you, you want to see that on a more regular basis. But I, I think just having those flashes is is good enough for me because it, it's it's awesome to see
1: what we saw in the preseason was just an unstoppable rip move from him that anytime these these you know young kids were trying to get their arms on him out there uh, you know it's they're they're gone immediately as soon as his arms under and uh, i i really love seeing that uh, i have not seen that as much during the regular season i've seen more just plain bull rush from him but the bull rush has been as when it's as effective as it was in this game there's no problem with that that's that's going to serve him well enough to be the uh, an nfl player I, I, what was interesting to me was that we really saw the penetrator because it was a really nice swim move to get by Rag now on that one run stop. That that's what we were promised with Michael with Travis Jones rather, and and we haven't seen as much to date.
2: Yeah, let me let me, let me bring that up right now. Um, so you're talking about the. Uh, Let's see. I'll give you the time three, time three reference on it. it was, yes, exactly. Yeah, three, three, yeah. Uh, I mean, again, it's just the the combination of quickness and strength, uh, to cut across the grain. Uh, I wonder if, 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 <laughs> I wonder if that was the, where Travis Jones was supposed to go based on how everyone else on that line is kind of slanting to the right and he's, he's going the other way. Uh, but Hey man, it, it worked for him. Um, and, and once he gets a, once he gets his, his hands on these guys who are, uh, you know, what, like 150 pounds less, they, they generally do not go very far. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh something to be excited about. Who's your next guy? Oh man, I'm kind of running out of uh guys. I mean I, I guess I'll kind of throw it to to, to Kyle Van Noy um and, and just kind of let seed the stage to you. I I know that he was your one of your your MVPs for this game. Um obviously he had the, the two sacks and it just keeps on being in the right place at the right time. Um so if if you want to Take the take the lead here and just say what uh with what uh impressed you with with with
1: Kyle? Sure. Just just lots to love in terms of Van Noy. He's been a great finisher. He's been a great starter in in this thing, but he doesn't have to be the starter and the finisher on this team. I actually thought they he would be the guy who would be dropping to coverage a lot, but I don't believe the Ravens have really right. used him in that. Um, thing I have to go back and, and, and look at this to see just how many times has he done it for the whole season. But basically, he's just been he's been creating and cleaning up pressure. And he's had some Mr. Almost moments himself where he's missed the initial sack, but but gotten in there, got the quarterbacks turned 90 degrees, which is usually enough to, to finish that play and and end up with somebody else making a play for you. Uh, you know, you want to get it if you if if you can. Otherwise, so Van Noy's only dropped the cover five times with the Ravens, and he's and he's rushed the passer in 93. Yeah, That's incredible.
2: So that, it's not Bowser. I, mean, I thought he would be like a. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I the, the the comp that I made, and I, I'm happy to admit I was completely wrong on. And maybe we'll we'll see this. You mm-hmm. know, his, his role change as He gets more comfortable with the coverage and stuff. Was like he would just be the poor man's as Bowser. But right. to, to have him go one coverage snap, one coverage snap, one coverage snap two cover snaps is I, I would not have bet any amount of money that that would have been the case. Yeah.
1: It's it's uh, it's, it has not been the case in his career. He's dropped a cover a lot. I want to say he's dropped over a thousand times over the course of his career. I looked it up when, when they acquired him, but it's, it's some huge number well, of I mean,
2: times. Dropped. Haven't, haven't been, haven't there been defenses that he's played on. Where the coaches have been comfortable enough to basically play him as an off-ball linebacker full time or like part time. Yes, they,
1: they, that has happened, and I'm and I'm not saying that, but New England, which is very similar to the Ravens in terms of how they play him, had right. him oftentimes lined up at the edge, and he's had as many as 439 coverage snaps I'm looking at it right now, 1937 coverage snaps. And you're right, it, it it's not the same if he's an off-ball four three or even a weak side linebacker. I don't think he ever played in that weak side role in a in a standard of a standard kind of a three, four, but I think he's played. Um, I think he has played off ball with, with three linebackers in a four, three.
2: Yeah. I, I, I'm curious to see if he's going to get better, if he's going to stay as productive as he has been, if he's going to recede a little bit. Um, I mean, you would, you would think that him being in this good shape, uh, despite not having a training camp, despite not having a preseason, uh, would lead you to believe that like the, the best days are ahead, but obviously he was born in 1990 and so, was <laughs> I. And so uh, I, I I would not feel great about playing football at, at age 33, but um, he seems like a very conscientious, smart guy. Um, obviously was very selective about, about uh, you know, who he wanted to play for and when he wanted to, to suit up. So uh, I'm sure that he's, he's got a plan for, for how he wants to kind of manage his body. And you're obviously much closer
1: to the team in terms of asking the right questions, having your hand on the pulse. Do you get the sense, Van Noy, my understanding was during the offseason, it was about money that he didn't sign with the Ravens. that He thought he was worth more. And hey, look in his play, he probably was. Um, but there's just there, there seems to be each year at Edge Rusher in particular, a, a, a larger number of veterans who can still give you something than at almost any other position. So it's it, obviously elite edge rusher is highly valued in the draft, you know, tremendously. But the Ravens have done very well, you know, zigging when everybody else is zagging in terms of finding guys late. I you mean, know, just over the last two years with JPP and Houston and Van Noy and Clowney, yeah. uh, who are cheap as hell. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, and and I was. I was ringing like the alarm bells for the, for the Ravens when they didn't sign Justin D'Ewson. Mm-hmm. I mean, last time I checked, he had like half a sack. I mean, uh, what is he at? Right. Well, he'd have five sacks if he were Four. here. <laughs> <In US band. laughs> yeah, exactly. I know it's, it's tough to, it's tough to argue that counterfactual. Cause as you said, you know, you, you don't know if that is a, a product of the, the Panther system. I mean, a Evro is uh, a very, very good, very, very smart uh, coach. So, so you would think that, um, the drop-off from a Mike McDonald scheme to a Jure ever wouldn't be that uh, steep, um, but obviously the, the Ravens know more than I did because they didn't think that Justin Houston had, you know, or I guess was worth whatever he was asking for. And they paid Clowney and they paid Vanoy and they are getting, you know, top dollar on those returns. Yeah, they're both. They're both. Very, by the
1: way, we had a mailbag question. Why don't we just hit it right now, since it was early? But the 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 question came, and I always like to give credit to the person who actually asked it. So I'll I'll find it as we go here. But the question came from, uh, okay, from Zach Serpa Weinberg, who says, "Hope I'm pronouncing it right." It's C E R P A uh, Weinberg. But he says, "On a defense with five plus MVP worthy performances each week." Who would you say has been the best performer relative to expectations so far this year? He says, "I think for my money, it's Stevens, though Clowney is one B." Who's your guy?
2: Yeah, it, it, it's tough to it's tough to disagree with that. Um, I guess you could, if, if I wanted to be a
0: save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app.
2: Maybe Patrick Queen uh, because he was last year a, you know, fringe Pro Bowl type guy. And then, you know, the there was that next-gen, the, the, that NFL.com next-gen stats-powered article that suggests that he was, in fact, the NFL's second-best linebacker. And I think if you are getting uh, the NFL's second-best linebacker, then the leap from, you know, maybe Pro Bowl performer to force a multiplier all-pro is – it's pretty steep you know it, mm-hmm. it takes a lot to, to go from being like a i don't know uh like zadarius smith in baltimore to a tj watt in pittsburgh you know what i mean like that, mm-hmm. there is a there's quite a gulf so if if you want to go with the assumption that patrick queen is playing like an all pro which on certain days he def- definitely feels like he is then i think you could argue that patrick queen ha- has had um one heck of an overachieving season but again uh I don't think anyone would have, would have expected Marlon Humphrey to be saying as he did last week in London or two weeks ago, whatever it is at this point. Uh, yeah. Brandon Stevens is playing like a pro bowl corner, <laughs> yeah, just, that's, uh, especially because he wasn't even because he was even supposed to be the corner. Yeah, I, I'm really glad that
1: the Ravens have figured out that that's a spot not only where he can help the team best, but I think also is his best position. It's just more natural in terms of being a, a, a physical player there. I'll give you two players who I think are, are might be more above expectation even than Queen. And part of that's probably unfair in my regard, because I I had high expectations of Queen expected that there's no way the Ravens going to be able to sign him and, you know, he'll be lost. But the two players that I think you got to look to first is Gino Stone and if you yeah. saw Geno Stone play for Marcus Williams last year, you wonder how they could have ever got by without him. Because I, honestly, the, the, the step down was just not that much. And Marcus Williams had an insane productivity per snap rate. So that, that's that's my one guy, my number one guy, or, or would be one of the two. The other is Michael Pierce. And he has just had a fantastic year at pushing the pocket at stopping the run and one of the precepts of what the ravens have had to do this year in terms of playing the defense they have and ne- never being forced out of it is they've got to be able to stop the run with the nickel and six in the box usually that means and the to do that and it's the hallmark of ravens history they've always been able to do it you got to have great inside linebackers they got that you got to have great edge setters eh, and you got to have great interior defensive lineman and they got that. So they've, they've really um, Pierce has been one of the really important players in there. And I think he's still one of the most dangerous if he got hurt in terms
2: of how they would place him. Yeah. And he, I think he, he is an object like an object lesson in, in terms of how we, the media and I guess fans in general talk about, or should talk about quote unquote injury prone players Mm-hmm. Because he, you know, has missed some time with uh, with, with injuries. But it wasn't soft tissue stuff. It, it wasn't a like a shoulder that kept on getting injured over and over again. Mm-hmm. There was the elbow injury with, when he was with the Vikings in 2021. Um, I think that there was another minor injury thing that, that he dealt with that wasn't considered major. You know, signs with the Ravens has a great start, uh, over those first couple weeks, then he tears the biceps and, you know, none of that to me can suggest that this was a guy who, because of the nature of those injuries was any more likely to get hurt the next season. Those are just like, I don't want to say freak injuries because you're playing football and he's a big dude playing a very, very physical sport, but it's not like, a knee injury that's going to prove degenerative. I mean, it's just like something you, you get surgery on and then, you know, you you wait until that bone's healed and then, you know, knock on wood, you are you are back to full strength the the, the next year. So I, I do wonder if the Ravens, you know, would have their druthers, if, if they would go back and take away that, if they would give him, if they would have uh, kept the original framework of that three-year deal so that he would be on under contract for next year, because mm-hmm. I think that would be tremendous value. Obviously, there were a lot of uh, complicating factors at play there with the Lamar Jackson situation and and getting all their ducks in a row in case they needed to match a qualifying offer. But I think if you could have had him and they they still might resign him, um, but if you could have had him for next year at like the annual average value of what, $5.5 million, that would have been tremendous. What 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 do you think it's going to take to re-sign him now? And
1: um, I I have my own fears about being end of end of career contracts. I really don't like he- holding that for a player. It's like holding the the uh, queen and old maid. You you really don't want to have that. But let's assume that they, that they that they want to have him. What do you think it would take to sign him?
2: Boy, <laughs> I guess now that I think about, it, I don't know if it would be all that much more mm-hmm. than than like the the, the pro rated version of what they sign him for because you know he has had a good pass rushing season but he still doesn't have a sack right
1: uh actually I don't know that it's, it's he's been uh he's been involved in so
2: much but I could not tell you in fact right yeah. if he's got a sack or not. It, it just seems like every single year there are those big, somewhat over the hill defensive tackles who are good run stuffers but don't give you a lot on pass rushing downs who are available in late August, early September there for the taking, just not wanting to put their bodies through training camp. And, you know, Mike is going to be, he turns 31 uh, Mm -hmm. uh, coming up November 6th. So early happy birthday to Mike Pierce. But um, even though he's been a good run stuffer, uh, I I just think the the fact that there's such a premium on pass rush protection and he, didn't have a sack last year. Uh, doesn't look like he has a sack this year. I don't know how coveted that will make him in the modern NFL. Although, you know, with, with the rise of two highs and everyone wanting to, you know, to take away these, these easy four or five yard, you know, runs that, that everyone is trying to spam uh, opposing defenses for, maybe, you know, maybe I'm, I'm underestimating his value. Yeah. I,
1: I, I, I'm six million if it were annual value over three years and the, and the contract is properly sloped to aggressively make him want to play out that deal as opposed to vacate it. Cause that's the problem. That's the old made problem you have with older players is they want to renegotiate their contract. You know, uh, every, every year for two years kind of thing is the, is the Derek Mason way. I'll call it. Um, hmm. I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be caught in that. Um, so, so I, so if I, I'd want probably a, a three-year deal, 18 million, where six million of that is paid in the last season. So it's not it's not one of these things where he gets it's all the money's front loaded and whatnot. There, there's a there's a, a you know a relatively modest signing bonus, maybe in the four million dollar range, and that's taken out of the first two years of salaries. You work out workouts as well. You work out incentives as well that could make it more, and and hopefully you could bring him back for 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 three more years. And I, you know at his age and. And what he does, there's always injury risk with all players, but I think a defensive tackle is actually a little better, he's got a little better chance to be a useful physical specimen at that position than almost anywhere else he might be on the football field from, from 31 to 34.
2: And, and not that it's a silver bullet or anything, but you know, if you talk to him and, and how he's uh, re, you know, reshaped his body. Um, he, he's like taking the great pains to, uh, you know, ha- have a nutritionist. Um, he, he's, <laughs> he does Pilates, he does yoga. Uh, I, I don't know how much of that is totally pre- preventative in terms of, uh, limiting injury risk, but I, I do think it has some benefit in, in the long haul. Uh, you know, especially just given what he has to put his body through every Sunday in the fall. So, um, He's in a good place mentally, good place physically. I know he just, you know, got married over the summer. Um, just a, a very, very happy guy, a guy who who loves to be in Baltimore, who uh, you know, would maybe give you that that hometown discount. Um, if if and when, you know, he he you know, returns to the negotiating table with the Ravens. So uh I love to have him around Baltimore. He's a great guy to talk to, and uh, I think he, he's put himself in a position where he can definitely have a a longer career than, than maybe some folks were expecting when he was uh, going through some some tough times injury wise a couple of years ago. Yeah,
1: this is you, you mentioned the things about his body, and this is one of the interesting things because the Ravens have a way of putting a player's real weight into the um, roster when they want to teach him a lesson, and the the big one was Ben Cleveland last year. They put in at three seventy. I think 370, 366, whatever it was, but it was way higher than he'd been previously. And they were obviously pissed off about it. So they put his real weight in there. Right now, Michael Pierce is listed at 355 pounds. And I don't know whether that's a preventive measure to try and say, hey, we don't want him to get out of shape again and come to camp like he did whatever that was four years ago now probably and and yeah. you know be just a balloon. But there is one of the Ravens coaches and, and I, I, the source in this is Melissa Kim. I did not hear this myself, but she told me this and, okay. and, and she did it on air. So it's, so it's, it's already a matter of public records. So I'm not tattling on her to, to do this. But she said there's some <laughs> coach that refers to Brent Urban and Michael Pierce together as a perfect 10. Think about it for
2: a moment <laughs> Might be the one, and who might be the zero? Oh wow! (laughs) Wow. That's great. (laughs) So, uh, so
1: I I had a hard time with it originally. It took me about ten seconds to figure it out. It's just like it's so mean, but it's so true, kind of thing. I don't know who the coach is who, who who did that, by the way.
2: That's fantastic. Uh,
1: All right. All right. Well, we've gone through a lot of the players. We got through a lot of it in in terms of the individual things. How about we talk about, uh, let me do one more question. Then we'll talk about defensive MVPs and we'll we'll call it a night here. So the other question I had, this is a good one. This is from Doug, DW drummer 99, who says, uh, who's getting paid first? Matabike, Queen, or Geno Stone? Who can we actually afford now that they're all playing to expectations, two expectations, they're all playing way above expectations?
2: Uh, well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's tough. I, I don't think, I, I guess I'll throw the question. to You Ken. who do you think is, would, would fetch more on the open market at this point? Matabike or Queen? Matabike. Cause he's an interior defender. The, 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 the market for that is at
1: a higher level. I just, I think he gets more money. I think Queen will get, um, Towards between 10 and 15 million per year, and I think Matabike might get 16 to 18 million per year as things are going right now.
2: That's fair. I mean, I think I remember <laughs> noting with some interest that uh, uh Patrick Queen, after Logan Wilson uh, agreed to his uh, 37.25 million, uh, oh, oh. Over four over four years, which works out to nine point three million. Uh, commenting that that was a, a steal for, for the Bengals, and I was like, "Huh, I, I wonder I wonder if he's pissed that the uh the, the the floor on the like above average, well above average linebacker market was not higher." So I, I guess that makes sense. I think Patrick Queen, just because of what he offers as a blitzer, um, and as a pass rusher in general, makes his salary probably much more favorable. The, mm-hmm. the, the floor of his salary, but probably probably much more favorable. But you're right that you know we we are now going into a market where these interior defensive linemen are basically being treated like A minus edge rushers in terms of the kind of earning potential that they have. So. I think you're right that that meta BK would would probably get higher than Patrick Queen unless Patrick Queen just gets like 10 sacks. And like I said, becomes an all pro. Um, But as far as timing, I mean, I don't foresee a future in which the Ravens strike a deal midseason with either. And because of the situation with Marcus Williams being signed long term and, you know, Kyle Hamilton being in year two of what's probably gonna be a five year rookie contract and Gino Stone and his agent probably being smart enough to know that, hey, but your your value is gonna be uh, much higher on an open market than it is negotiating with Eric DaCosta. I, I don't know if there's a right answer for timing because it could just be all within that legal legal tampering period when, when everything gets sorted out. Okay, so the exercise I just went through kind of in my mind was to say,
1: what's the percentage chance of each of them resigning with the Ravens? And I'll just say it's low in all three cases. But I'll give yeah. you mine, and then you, you just did how you see fit. Give me your numbers. But I'll, I'll say Patrick Queen, I think, is maybe 10%. And it would really take a confluence of circumstances for it to happen. He'd have to almost get hurt, be looking for a one-year prove-it deal. I mean, it's almost like that sort of a thing, that that something would right. have to happen that would be very bad. It'd be like J.K. Dobbins resigning is because a prove it deal is the best option, and he's here, and he likes playing with Roquan. He thinks that's how he can maximize his value. But I don't think there's any realistic chance Patrick Queen resigns if he completes this year as he's playing now at the level he's playing now. I think he's gone for sure. Uh, yeah. uh, Matt, and if you can- just
2: the, 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 Go ahead, Yeah. Just 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 the fact that again, n- not that this should, not that this should sway the Ravens' decision making with a. Player as important and as talented and as ascended as Patrick Queen, but like there is that there is that investment of capital in Trenton Simpson, who you know for all the flaws that he showed in the preseason is still a very athletic, very high ceiling player, and I don't think they're gonna. I don't. If I'm Eric DeCosta, I don't want to basically throw away a third round pick because um, you know there's a a chance that I can have Patrick Queen next to Roquan Smith for the next four or five years. My you know, GM GM show. Yeah. you you'd, you'd essentially have to trade
1: Simpson at that point, or you'd probably want to right. to maximize your your return on that. I, I think that um, uh, there's there's another lost component of Ravens' value in terms of franchise management that they're not getting right now, and it falls into their eighty percent of the value at twenty percent of the price notion. If let's say Queen does go out and make fifteen million next year, yep, and the Ravens might have to pay him that. Well, think about what five million could buy you. You can have three players at that spot platooning are certainly two pretty good ones uh and and I mean by that a safety who's a big hard hitting decent coverage safety on on your passing downs and another two down thumper who's there for other downs um it wouldn't be perfect but it would certainly be um more than a third of the value at you know a third of the price kind of thing and so I think the ravens are missing an opportunity to do that and I think any t- your 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 third best coverage safety in virtually 100% of NFL instances is better than your second best coverage inside linebacker in terms of pure coverage skills. I think we saw that with Anthony Levine and what he did for the Ravens for all these years, but we've also seen it for eight other dimebacks that the Ravens have had in their history. So it's not like the Ravens are – it's a it's a foreign concept to them. I think they'll, they'll try and tap into that value with platooning at the position because they have to figure out how they can save uh, on this second Lamar contract.
2: Yeah, and, and th- there's enough – you know, to, to your point about just dimebacks that, you know, even though you will probably lose some of that fun flexibility mm-hmm. of having Roquan and Patrick Queen, you know, mug up the A-gap on these second and long and third and longs, you know, maybe you can have Jalen Armour Davis or Pepe Williams develop into a competent enough defensive back where, you know, it seems like the 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 back four for next year should be pretty well set. Where with you know assuming Marcus Williams is on the team, where it's Kyle Hamilton, Marcus Williams, Marlon Humphrey, Brandon Stevens, that's a pretty nice foundation to build off of. And if you want to take out Patrick Queen and replace him with a Pepe, with a Jalen Armor Davis, with a you know maybe they resign Mollette or, or whatever, just you know, to, to 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 make those numbers right, then that's a, a totally palatable solution. Mm-hmm
1: uh Matt Abike, I had a 10% chance to re-sign. Again, I think t- something has to really go wrong for Matt Abike not to hit the open market. And again, I, I, I'm sad to say, I think most of the chance of the Ravens re-signing him would be some sort of horrific injury where he has to, again, go through a prove-it year. And, you know, it is possible to happen. It's happened lots of times in Ravens history. Um, Brent Urban kind of, I think, went through that process with the Ravens as well as a guy who was looked like he was really going to get paid off. And uh, and it didn't end up happening um you know there's been plenty of others too where it's just been a, a tragic kind of end to their careers Matt Skura comes to mind as a guy who who really got injured yeah. at exactly the wrong time in year four um but anyway with matabike I think the chance is very low if he plays out this season as is I think he gets a huge contract I looked at the OTC valuations by the way they have matabike at about 12.6 million and, and Queen over 15 million right now for this year's play so I don't know exactly how they calculate that but but it's an interesting point as to who might make more in the future.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, I guess that that jibes more with what I was kind of feeling. That, that just, just, just that they would be closer in in valuation. Um, you know, I, I think it, it is interesting to consider Patrick Queen's age. He still gosh, twenty four years old. Right? Uh, yep. Justin Madabique is, yeah. Justin because is is a year older. Um, he's but he's turning twenty six in a, in a matter of weeks. So Patrick Queen's still very much an ascendant player. Um, still kind of figuring out the the mental side of the game. Um, and you know if he can be, it's going to be interesting to see which team he he ends up with and how they kind of use him because he has been such a good blitzer that I feel like. To throw him in there and expect him to be like a fred warner would be a poor decision at least initially until he proves that he has that kind of supercomputer mind to to handle the roquan smith level duties on a play-to-play basis mm-hmm. uh, i think he is just best served right now at least on this ravens defense is like a kind of homie missile uh, yep. you know um but he, he's a very very smart driven guy and i'm sure you know Basically anything is possible with him. I mean, it, it is kind of funny to to go back and, and look at all the the hemming and hawing of which Ravens, you know, which linebackers should the Ravens uh, pick from that twenty twenty draft because Kenneth Murray has not done much of anything. Um, who, who was the other? The Jordan the other Brooks run, was right before linebacker. him. Yeah, he's he's been banged up, hasn't really done a whole lot. And here's Patrick Queen, uh, you know, just proving the. Uh, the evaluators right that that he was the 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 right pick and he was the second after off, off the the board in that case. Yeah, it's
1: uh, i I always have a little bit of a hard time justifying the pick when the guy doesn't get the fifty year option picked up even towards the end of the first round. <laughs> uh, but but it, uh, he yeah. is a it, you know an inside linebacker. It's a big price, and so um, you know you, you it, it's it's always going to be kind of a question about that. I, I think the Ravens might be. Might want to reverse their call based on what's happened over the last, uh, you know, since the begin, since the end of his third year in deciding whether or not they they pick up that fifth year, but. Maybe not. Maybe, you know, they knew this was coming. And this is, you know, the sad fact of life is teams that draft well have to consistently make heartbreaking choices about their homegrown players. Ravens are no different. And they, uh, you know, they're in this position. And believe me, it's a lot better than being in the Arizona Cardinals position of not drafting enough good players and having to go pick somebody else's
2: players at a premium (laughs) price, you know, after that time. So, yeah, I mean, twelve point seven million dollars for twenty twenty four. That's what the fifth year option would have cost, and I think yeah. probably a bargain at this point, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. Um, Geno Stone, I think the chance
1: of, of him resigning is not quite as low. So I'm going to say, right. um, and 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 some of it has to do with how he's utilized the rest of the year. They people may have seen enough that hey, he's leading the NFL interceptions. He's a good safety. He's going to make something. But I think if the you know. The, the Ravens are kind of chasing the price on him as they look at him this season, and they might really like to have him because it would it would allow them to have the two back-end safeties and move Hamilton up to nickel and maybe even move somebody into dime next year. Um, Stone could be that guy if you really wanted to waste his talents by by playing on the front end, but Hamilton could be that guy too in terms of playing that dime spot. But But my point is that I think they would still have usefulness for Stone. The question is, I think they're just chasing the price up. And I think, you know, three years, sixteen million, maybe, maybe it was realistic three weeks ago. Now it ain't. They're not going to get him for that kind of a price. I think he could make, he could end up making ten million dollars a year when it comes to signing time.
2: Yeah, I mean, all it takes is one team, right? Uh, just one one owner who, who sees that. What uh, wasn't the. Uh, I think the NFL interceptions leader, whoever was last year, was like six picks for the entire Cowboys. season. Uh, I could, I could be, Yeah, let me look at it. Go uh, ahead. I, I'll, I'll pick it up while you're making your uh, point. I'm sorry. Google, you know? I think it was make, make it up with the and CJ, CJ. So Gino Stone here he is with four picks and yeah. uh, and despite not being a totally full time player in, in every single one of those games. So um, you know, even if he, even if the pick on sunday was the last of his year he's probably going to finish in the upper in like the 80th percentile or above for for the entire nfl in picks and there is such a premium on turnovers and takeaways and uh just doing your job and i don't think there's a a player who's epitomized that more than gino this year there's only about 30 guys in the entire nfl who had four picks last year
1: so that's uh yeah it'd be really special if he ended up finishing there and and uh uh, but not not as special as it would be if he had eight. You know, done. and um, know. It, it, it's just it's, he's he's been remarkable in terms of his conversion rate and everything. but he's a perfect loose bracket center fielder. he, he and he knows when to undercut undercut a route or play the overthrow. I mean, I, I, you don't ever want to throw around Ed Reed's name lightly, but he has he's kind of a a, a, a lesser Reed in terms of his ability to to figure out these things. trusts his Reeds tremendously you know as a poker player you really like that in in when when somebody can can actually read the quarterback and trust their reads and i thought it was interesting you probably saw the thing that was a little a little um video analysis of the interception he had against um um yeah from Ben Solak right
2: yes exactly exactly and and yeah, how well using, that was done using there. quotes that I had got from that from that post game
1: <laughs> oh really was that, was that it so yeah. you asked him about how'd you know and he said well the the route broke to the outside so I didn't have my responsibilities over here and he hadn't looked at the quarterback and he was looking at the quarterback he didn't look at the receiver at all because he had that part wrong Yeah, that's great uh,
2: right, I, right. I, 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 mean, I did not know you were a part of that that's fantastic man uh, well I mean like I Ben, ben Solak's an encyclopedia for knowledge I mean, he just you know knows techniques and schemes and zone stuff that uh, it would, would take me years to understand. So he, he did a far better job than I did, but uh, I, I did feel like, you know, what, what's the, uh, what's the tweet that went viral from a couple of years ago? Like I've been working on this story for four years and he just tweeted it out. <laughs> so something <laughs> like that, obviously not, not, not to that extent, but uh, it, it was, it was fun to see that, that used in a, a much more uh, compelling way than I did. But yeah, I mean, it's like, it was uh split field coverage and, he had it was Brand Stevens against Jamar Chase and uh Joe Burrow looks at uh J- Jamar Chase initially and then moves off his read. And that's that was the cue that Gino needed to go middle of the field and, and be where he had to be to I think pick off that pass to mm-hmm. Steve Higgins, who um, if not for Gino would have been pretty much wide open because, uh, you know, Roquan said quite confidently after the game that like, you know, they knew what was coming, but <laughs> T Higgins was, 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 had separated from T Higgins, uh, had separated from, from Roquan on that particular play. So they are lucky that their, their teamwork was, was, uh, you know, working in concert the way it was. Cause otherwise that would have been an, an easy touchdown for Joe Burrow and the Bengals. Yeah very much an individual
1: play within that team scheme uh that that, that right. Gino Gino made there. Because the whole play was designed to draw him in to the to the chase route. So anyway, beautiful thing. Let's talk MVPs from this game if we can and and I'll I'll let you go. You've been a, a great sport about this talking football for a long time. But uh I usually just go three two one. Who's your number three defensive MVP in this game?
2: Oh man, let's see is a good question. I I guess, I guess just because of the, the sheer efficiency numbers, you know, I I can go with like a combination of Brandon Stevens and Marlon Humphrey, just, you know, show some love for the, the cornerbacks who uh, made life rather difficult for this exceptionally efficient lions, uh, lions passing attack. I mean, obviously they, they were not the, the cornerstones of that, of that, uh, that effort to, to, limit the damage over the middle of the field, but um, it is It is a, it, it, you know, the Lions wouldn't be so efficient over the middle the field if they didn't have great options out wide. And I, I think for Marlon to be as physical as he was and for Brandon Stevens to be in on as many plays, disrupting stuff, catching up to stuff, um, just mm-hmm. uh, e- even if the overall impact wasn't. Um, you know, star level. I, I just think I, I want to give those guys a nod for, for being uh really, really underrated performers in a comprehensive defensive effort. Yeah. Can't argue with that. Great, great selections. My number three
1: guys, Adafe Owe uh, coming back from injury, just a terrific game. I have him scored for four pressures. Uh, one sack fumble and really nice to see him get on the board there. And then also the play you mentioned earlier, the big hold, um, that is a hell of a right tackle. One of the best in the national football league and Penny Sewell that he had beaten to the inside. He drew the necktie hold. Um, but a funny story of this game, we had a, I mean, obviously there's a lot of Detroit fans at the game here that just a lot of this, you know, baby blue kind of uniforms all over the, the stands, but we had four of them sitting behind us. And the thing that they couldn't, one guy anyway, could not stop talking about is how they weren't calling any holding penalties on the Ravens. And of course, they called three holding penalties on the Ravens. They didn't call none. You know, they got Ronnie Stanley twice in this game. How many do you want? you want 11 in a game? Is, is 15 enough? You know, but he just couldn't stop. Guy, And he's, it's like, it's 35 to nothing. Do you really think that's the whole, <laughs> the whole reason for the score? But it, but it was kind of funny to listen to anyway. That uh, And it would have been
2: not nearly as funny if the Ravens had been losing. I'll say that. I know I know. By, by the way just like I, I was I was expecting us to to touch on this at some point I don't think we, we've t- we've touched we've talked much about brady but <laughs> again like another another I find myself saying what are the odds but what are the odds that Ro Washington uh, would have drawn a holding penalty <laughs> against Penny Sewell yeah. on a pass rush snap just such a I think I think I have the notes right here but the f- from left to right, the the Ravens uh, lineup along the line of scrimmage on that uh, on that particular play. What was it? Uh, okay, um, so this is left to right. It's Devin Clowney, Patrick Queen, Roquan Smith, Kyle Van Noy, and then. Just like the the chef's kiss, uh, Michael Pierce <laughs> next to Project Washington, mm-hmm. those are the two guys that you have basically lining up on, on Panay Sewell's side of the, uh, of the of the of the offensive line there, and it worked because Jared Goff was flushed out of there, and Project Washington was there to you know basically have the to set the edge as a as a pass rusher, I guess if you want to call it that. And when Project Washington tried, tried to pull away from Panay Sewell, Sewell grabbed him, and the ref threw the flag, and that was that. Yep. So he was, he was flushed right. And, and he
1: went to chase him and all of a sudden he's inside the shoulder pad of shoulder pad, or was it actually in the collar of him? I've, I've kind of forgetting, but, uh, but a, uh, yeah, one of those really good plays. It's I, I, you know, I love drawn holding flags are a big indicator for me for uh, any any sort of pass rusher, and if you, it, they, you, should, really shouldn't be thought of as anything really less than a sack. Even on first down, a ten yard hold is approximately equivalent in value to a four yard loss. That brings up so first and twenty and second and fourteen are approximately equivalent in terms of your chance to convert them. So it's it's it, it's a huge play when you when you get an offensive hold. Plus, there's another hidden value there is that the, the defense has the optionality on a holding call of denying the play or not. So if the if the actual result of the mm-hmm. play was a sack or was some other event that they like more because of the down and distance, they get to keep that instead. That's why post snap penalties so much more significant than pre snap flags.
2: Yep. Works for me. All
1: right. You're number two guy, I think. So the, I, I had to away at number three.
2: Yeah. Number two. Uh, yeah. I mean I, I think I think we're probably in lockstep with with What you had on, on your uh, film study, uh, recap of uh, Justin Matapike. I mean, for you know, looking at the next gen stats, uh, for pressures, um, he was double teamed, uh, on 42 percent of his pass rush snaps. Um, wow, as a, as a run defender, he, he was, uh, let's see, let's see how many did he have any run stuffs? He did not have any, but still, he had he had two. Uh, run tackles. Um, the Lions just did not run the ball as much as we expected because they weren't in a position to. Um, so, yeah, it was just a, a, a very nice, you know, rise to the moment kind of game against a very, very good interior uh, Lions offensive line. One sack, another
1: sack he should have had on a ball that was grounded uh, by Goff. He got the quarterback hit on the play. If that quarterback hit had, had gotten turned into a roughing the passer to offset the grounding, that would have probably been a moment that would have made my head explode, particularly after the Michael Pierce uh, roughing the passer last week, which I thought was ridiculous. The the, the, uh, the notion that Goff would be able to ground the ball and then not take a hit in that situation uh, would, have been, would have been really silly. But uh, frankly, Matabiga just denied a sack. It was a, It was a minus 12. On the play, it's it's as good as a sack. It should get it should count in that category, honestly. But obviously, it doesn't. So uh, uh, he is my number two guy as well. Five pressures as I scored it,
2: including that play. Yeah, to to kind of bring back the the point of just like as a finisher right now. Just looking at some PFF stats, so he is he has twenty one pressures. Uh, according to PFF this year, six sacks. So you are talking about basically converting one of every three pressures for a sack. Compare that to Aaron Donald, 35 pressures, just three sacks so far. And then Chris Jones, 28 pressures, seven sacks. Very good. So he is well ahead of the curve in terms of making the most of his opportunities. Um, You you know, you you do wonder if, if there is some... Negative regression come in there for him, uh, like like I mentioned earlier. But until the evidence mounts otherwise, uh, the Ravens should just enjoy the ride, and I'm I'm sure Justin is a, is, is going to do that as as uh, as happily as he you know can be
1: that's a very very valid point and that's the right way I think to look at that regression because they always people from PFF always tell me those pressures are going to be much more stable than the sacks so it's kind of like how many at bats are you getting is your is your pressure in a, in a sense in terms of how you finish them up I do think this Ravens defense is providing him with lots of opportunities for cleanup. That some of these other players might not be getting on other teams, so uh, uh, so, but that's a measure of 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 value and opportunity too that that probably doesn't work in Matabike's favor in terms of how
2: much of that he's personally generating. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you could say he's he benefiting in a lot of the same ways that Justin Houston benefited last year. You know, been uh, the 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 on the receiving end of a lot of the, these great stunts and twists that have been set up for him by guys like Patrick Queen. From calls like Mike from uh, on calls from Mike McDonald, um but again, you know it, it doesn't work unless you're executing your end of the bargain too, and and he's definitely doing that. All right, and your number one guy, I think you're number one guy, right, Kyle Van Noy? There you go.
1: All right, uh, another big game, and uh, do we need? We've already kind of hit on a lot of what he did in this game. Do we, is there anything else you want to point out that maybe we we missed earlier?
2: no I think let's see I think uh I think ngs had him with five pressures let me see it was yep five pressures mm-hmm. uh so you know eighteen point five pressure rate which uh was I believe the best on the team uh, again I think he's done that at least two or three times so far uh you know obviously not not double teamed all that high because he's on the edge there but uh you know time to pressure 3.42 seconds pretty good um you know yeah i mean just uh being the the right guy at the right time um it's been very very fun to see the the kind of range of of pass rush moves that he had i mean until Last week, uh, that that nice little spin move that he had against Tennessee, I didn't know that he had that in that bag, but <laughs> he, he definitely does. And it's uh, he he looks he look good he looks uh, looks looks good doing it for a 33 year old. Yeah, that's it, it's bodacious. It is really fast. Get to the body and spin right
1: <laughs> off it, and there's just nothing the tackle can do. You know, one of the things that impressed me about Van Noy in this particular game was that Clowney did not have a great pressure game. I I scored Clowney for two pressures. Um, and, and he played a fair number of snaps and look, the, the, they were passing the ball every down for a lot of the game with 58 out of 72 passes, uh, pass plays out of, uh, 58 to 72. So it, it wasn't a great game for Jadavian Clowney. And yet the, the, Ravens still put it together in terms of another fine pass rush effort. And, you know, Van Noy, Matabike and Owe, who are the top three guys on my list, uh, really were the three who, who put it together. I mean, they got a, you know, an Arthur Mollett sack and they, they, they had other guys delivering pressure, but those three
2: really put together a great game. Yeah. And it's a, it's a good sign that they can do what they did against this talented lines front, because now they're going against against the Cardinals who have some nice pieces, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Paris Johnson, uh, I guess has done pretty well as a rookie, but you look at what PFF had them ranked going into week seven, just the 20th best offensive line. So this is the kind of line that if current form holds, um, you know, the odds are definitely in the Ravens' favor. They, they should definitely have uh, the, the means and the personnel to to get after. Uh, I guess it's probably going to be Josh Jobs at this point. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I, mean, I was just texting with a friend earlier. Nothing was surprising with this Ravens team. Ken. I, I? I don't know how how secure you feel about the Ravens coming out of Arizona with a win. But <laughs> I, I am uh, the, the the thoroughness of the Ravens' victory has inspired an, an inverse feelings of of confidence just because of how. Wacky and weird surveying season has been. Yeah, that's that's true.
1: I I I am always kind of a worry warts so I'm always kind of fearful of what could go wrong, kind of like a helicopter pilot instead of a fixed wing guy, where you know, you just worry about <laughs> you know how this thing is going to drop out of the sky. But I it is it is a reasonable concern, I think, to first of all, to the travel involved and everything to 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 see what might happen in Arizona. But uh yeah, anyway, it is what it is, I guess. a, a hopefully a bad team and a mismatch and they're eight and a half point favorites. Uh, Let's hope this. uh, Let's hope this works out because they don't have a lot of easy games left on the schedule.
2: No, I I think the if if you're you're drawing up a a worst case, like a a how does this go wrong type thing, it's like it basically comes down to Hollywood Brown revenge game. Because other than that, (laughs) I I don't really see a lot of recourse for for the Cardinals. I mean, you know, obviously there's the, the possibility that the Ravens just get into the the red zone like four or five times and again just only have to come away with field goals because of whatever weirdness um afflicts them uh and whatever you know good juju they had with them in baltimore against detroit does not hop on that plane and make the five-hour trip to <laughs> arizona but again they that they are they have a better offense they have a better defense they should have a relatively equal special teams i think the ravens are down to 19 in dvoa in special teams which is uh pretty frightening prospect considering uh you know our top three expectations for them but um again this is this is a, a game where they're well like eight or nine point favorites and i think vegas is, is not lying when they when they make when they make it uh, that decisive yeah and i'm also not buying that special
1: teams uh relativity i think there's regression to number one that will occur for the Ravens' special teams because they they're they are so well coached and so talented in terms of that and frankly kick coverage is almost no part of the game anymore I mean, you, you can take it totally out of the I game know. if you just kick the ball in the end zone. So anyway, I, I, Jonas, always a pleasure to talk football with you. I know we said this on the first episode, but it's just it's just it, it's natural. We go down so many rabbit holes when we talk about this, but it's a it's a natural consequence of really just enjoying talking football with you. Tell folks where they can um, reach you online, where they can reach, read your work from the banner and and whatever else you may have going on.
2: Yeah, uh, if, if you like listening to the sound of my voice, we have a. Banner Ravens podcast uh, hosted with Paul Mancano, uh, just a, 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 a much more abbreviated version of Ravens talk. I think our, our editors are capping it at, at a half hour for now. I hope, we're hoping to get a little bit more expansive in the months and possibly years to come, but um, listen to that on Spotify, listen to that on Apple, Apple podcasts, Banner Ravens podcast. And then uh, if you just want to read our coverage, um, we have a uh, big feature on Roquan Smith coming uh, from our other beat reporter Gianna Han uh, on, on Wednesday, um, nicely timed to the impending anniversary of Roquan's trade. Uh, just kind of talking about his emergence as a leader, as a communicator. Um, he, he's uh, you know in a lot of ways become the kind of unofficial spokesman of this Ravens team. He he talks the talk and he, he's definitely walking the walk. And I'm excited to to see uh, how that story turns out, and uh, excited to see people's reaction to it. All
1: right. All right. Fantastic. Other folks out there, if you'd like to be on a film study short, hit me up. DMs are always open on Twitter. I'm always looking for new content. And this is the way this works. It's a guest driven show. Uh, and I meet new people by you contacting me. And with your idea for a story, I'll work it out with you. Again, try and make it kind of small so we can get it done in about 20 or 30 minutes. That's the goal of this shorter content to introduce the show to other people. Jonas, thanks again for coming on. My pleasure Ken. Thank you for having me. And we'll talk to you next time on film study.